That was really cool. Thanks, Dave. And Scott. All right, we are in the, Ro- the Rooted series where we're talking about what it is that we believe as a church. And this particular weekend, we're talking about the Lord's Supper. And this is, man, we, you're, we're coming from lots of different backgrounds here. Um, right here in this, in this congregation right now, we have people who came from Catholic backdrops, Lutheran backdrops, Presbyterian backdrops, Methodist backdrops, Baptist backdrops. I hate church. I'm never going to go backdrops, Buddhist, everything. We're like the old country buffet of different backdrops. And so when it comes to communion, when we're taking the Lord's Supper, it's something that obviously this is going to be something we don't all see eye to eye on or try to figure out what it is that we really believe in. So this morning, we're going to talk about what it is from a standpoint of, of as, a, as a church, what do we believe and uh, this, this beginning slide here, the Lord's Supper, the ritual which transforms how we view the present, the past, and the future, is what relates to this idea of communion. It's one part now, it's one part back then, and it's one part down the road. And so what we're going to be doing, and I, I, you've got notes, but I filled in all the blanks so you could just kind of enjoy and just take it in, because um, it's going to be somewhat visual this morning. Um, but let's go ahead and take a look at what we've written down in our Articles of Faith as a church as to what we believe on the Lord's Supper. And that kind of emphasizes the importance of now, the validation of what Jesus does with it now. It says, we believe that all believers are welcome to share in the Lord's Supper. It's a time of com- commemoration and proclamation of his death until he returns and should be preceded by solemn self-examination. We also believe that the elements of the bread and wine are symbolic of the body and the blood of Christ. Um, through communion, Jesus validates the now, the present, in, in just a couple of ways. First off, he validates the importance of now because he invited me here. And he invited you here on a, on a very individualistic basis. This Taking the, the bread and the cup is a private thing. It, it's a very individual thing. And, and, and the cool thing about that is that no matter what's happening in your life, no matter what's happened in your past week, no matter what's taken place as far as the weight or, of disappointment, of failure, no matter how you, you stack up to the people at work or the people, how, people's, how they perceive you or their, how their perceptions of you as a person or a parent or your morale, all that stuff, all that stuff is just left at the door because in the Lord's Supper, in, in, in the Lord's table, you're invited by Jesus. And if you're, if you're a Christian, he's qualified you. He's enabled you to partake in this. this. The Lord's Supper talks about the importance of now because I'm not just talking about an event that took place back then. I'm talking about an event that continues to happen whenever I engage Jesus in communion. That's the importance of now. And, and it, the cool thing is, is that we believe, again, as the first line says, that all believers, all believers are welcome. Now, some church systems within Christianity, um, you, this is not an open table. And, and they've got their reasons for that and some, some, some kind of good reasons for that as far as we want to make sure that you're really a Christian and you've gone through the right amount of classes. You really know what's taking place. At Manuka Bible Church, it's open to any believer. So if this is not your home church, but you affirm that the resurrected Christ, this table is for you. If you're someone who, who's been away from church for a long, long time, but you are a Christian, this table is for you. As long as you're someone who affirms Jesus, you're, you are someone who's a redeemed believer, man, this table is for you. And that's the importance of now. But it's not just me. It's not just an individualistic thing. See, the cool thing is, is that if you're sitting right there, let's say you came here all by yourself. You didn't come with a friend or a family member. You are here all by yourself. 
You need to also remember that communion is for all of them. I mean, how awkward is it that you're staring at people through the whole entire service this week? How messed up was this idea? I mean, when, when, when people are singing, you're going to see them sing or not. I mean, that's there. And so the reason that we did that was because this is, the Lord's table is something that is, has a family element to it. It has, has a dynamic where we're coming together as a family. And that, that this isn't just for me privately, but that this is for us Paul, when he was talking to the church in Corinth, which again, the church in Corinth had tons of issues, one of the things that he corrected them about was the way that they took communion, the Lord's Supper. In fact, he said, you know what? It probably would, you guys would be better off if you never showed up at church. That's how messed up church is when you guys get together. And one of the key things that he highlighted was how they took the Lord's Supper. See, back in the day, there wasn't someone in the church who went to the local jewel to buy the grape juice. There wasn't someone in the church who made the bread. Everyone, it was kind of like a potluck dinner where everyone brought their own food and brought their own, I mean, it was, it was kind of a BYB, BYOB, in that they were bringing their own drink as well. And so they're bringing their own wine, they're bringing their own food. So you've got the rich people who like, man, they went, they, I mean, Mariano's, they got all the stuff, they've got tons of boxes of food, they bring it in, and they're like, oh, this is great, and then you got the Trader Joe's crew, and they're like, oh, but ours is organic, and like, and everyone's got their own stuff, and, and tons of alcohol, and then you've got the people who are poor, and they couldn't hardly bring anything, and it's, this had the potential to be a great thing where all the rich and, and all the poor have everything that, they've, they, everything that they've brought laid out on the table and they all share in community, but that's not what was happening. The rich would just keep their stuff to themselves and with their families and they would just gorge on it. And Paul's like, you guys are getting fat and drunk. You're drinking all the wine for yourself, you're eating all the food for yourself and there's people in your congregation that are going hungry. How, how messed up is this? Don't you realize that this is a coming together? One of the most, the coolest things about communion is, and maybe something that we don't always think about, is that we take this together. We don't, at Manuka Bible Church, we don't give you to-go cups to enjoy this in the privacy of your own home. We do this in community, together. And so, when you're coming to the table, especially this week, there's going to be like a line and everything inside of you is going to be having that like six flags or, or, or grocery store mindset of, oh, seriously, everywhere I go has a line? I hate lines. I can't stand waiting. I don't want to. But in communion, you have a different dynamic because as you're walking down the aisle, you're waiting in the line, you actually have the opportunity to say, I thank God for the fact that this guy in front of me, this guy in front of me is going to have a chance to partake in, in the presence of Jesus right here with, 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 alongside me. That the person behind me is a brother or sister as well. How cool is that? I don't even know who they are. But we're taking part in this meal together. See, the Lord's Supper is something where, you know, it, it's an acknowledgement of the fact that bigotry and racism and divisiveness, that's all human reality. That happens all the time out there. But we check that at the door here. We, we recognize that when we come to the table, it's a re-reminder of the fact that we are rediscovering forgiveness. We're rediscovering the fact that we don't hold grudges against people. We rediscover the fact that in spite of the fact that we have so many things that divide us and separate us, we have so much more in common because of who Jesus is. Amen? And so clicks, clicks happen. But, but the Lord's Supper is a reminder that even though that's a human dynamic, whenever you gather a large group of people together, at the Lord's Supper, we reset the clock and say, not here. Not here. I'm taking part in a meal with my brothers 
and sisters in Jesus. The importance of now helps us know that, that he invited me here, but not just me, he invited us here. And thirdly, that he is here. That in the bread and the cup, that, that there's something significant about this. Now, depending on, on your upbringing, different churches have had different weights on, on what's taking place with this, right? Like, if, if, up, up, through the, up to the Middle Ages, up before the Reformation, the only Christian church was the Catholic Church. And right around the Middle Ages, there was something where they said, you know what, this is a, an incredibly significant meal. In fact, there's something about Jesus saying, this is my body, this is my blood, that's actually like, we're taking him in. And, and it's like, salvation could even happen through the taking of the, because it's not just bread anymore. When the priest holds up the, the bread in the, in the Catholic Church, he's, he says something. What he says is hoc est corpus, which is Latin for this is my body. Hoc est corpus. And what, they, what within Catholicism is believed is that something happens when the priest does that. This goes from being bread that you either purchased or made, and it transforms into the actual body. It's called, and that's the theological word for that is transubstantiation. There's a transformation that takes place. Now, the, the, the medieval church stopped learning Latin. And so the only people who know Latin are the priests. And so when the priest holds up the plate and says, hoc es corpus, hoc es corpus, the people in the, in the audience have no idea what's going on. All they know is that this was bread before, but now the priest is saying that this is the actual physical flesh of Jesus. And so outside of the church, they would make fun of that because they didn't understand what was going on. And they said, so it looks like this, but all of a sudden he says hocus corpus, and all of a sudden it becomes something else. And that's where we get the term hocus pocus from. It's from that, like a, a parody of what was being said in the Latin, hocus corpus, this is my body. Well, out of the Reformation, um, there was Catholics said, you know what, the best way to be Catholic is to look at Scripture. And you can't get saved by eating something or drinking something. I mean, that'd be like, we could brag about that. I mean, it's by faith. And so there was a guy named Martin Luther, and he said, no, it doesn't actually physically become the body and the blood of Jesus, but it's like alongside it. Like Jesus' actual body and blood is alongside the bread and the cup. And so what, his, what he believed was that that's why it's so powerful because what Jesus' presence and essence is right next to it. Have any of you guys had like a rose con pollo? What's a rose con pollo? Chicken and rice, right? And so you got a rose, which is rice, and then pollo. What's the other word? Cone, which means with. So Luther's, what Luther said is it's not transubstantiation, it's con substantiation, cone substantiation with. So it's not, it doesn't become Jesus, but Jesus is with it. He's like alongside it. Well, within that same group of people who came out of Catholicism, there's another guy named Zwingli. And Zwingli's like, you know what? I, man, my Catholic brothers and sisters and my Lutheran brothers and sisters, they're way too medieval about this. And they're way too mystic about this. This doesn't become Jesus's body or Jesus's blood. It's just, it's just, bread and, and juice and, or wine. And, and, and this is just us responding like a memorial for someone who's passed away. We're celebrating what Jesus did. And so if you came from a Baptist backdrop, that's what, what, what most Baptists would say is that this is completely symbolic and there's no presence of God in here. So the Lutherans, the Baptists, and the Catholics are fighting about this and they kind of let it to the next generation to figure out. And the person in the next generation is John Calvin. If you came from a Presbyterian backdrop, that's, that's kind of Calvin's stomping grounds. And Calvin said this, I think that this is far more symbolic 
than my Lutheran and Catholic brothers and sisters make it out to be. Because again, Jesus' body is, is, is in heaven. It's not here in this plate. But it's far more sacred than my Baptist brothers and sisters make it out to be. Because there is something weighty about this. This isn't simply just obeying Jesus' command. We meet with Jesus in a significant and weighty way. We experience his presence here. And so today, if you're a believer and you participate in communion, I, my, my hope is that it's not just a, I'm just doing this because this is what we do every month, but instead it's something that you recognize the weight, the weight and the significance of what's taking place here. It's a validation of the now. But because of the fact that this is something that is a past event that we're celebrating, it is a validation of the past as well. Take a look at the next section of uh, Lord's, or, uh, the Articles of Faith talking about the Lord's Supper. Uh, it validates the importance of the past because the bread symbolizes his perfect life and the body in which he actually bore our sin on the cross. The wine represents his blood, which was shed for the remission of our sins and is also a sign of the new covenant of grace. Jesus comes in and, you know, wh- whether you talk about, how, how many of you grew up and, and this, what we're about to do is called the Eucharist. Okay. Eucharist means, means thanksgiving. And so it, it's a thanksgiving meal, thanking Jesus for what he's done and, and bringing to him praise. Uh, how many of you grew up and it was, it was called uh, the Lord's table or communion? Okay. That's, and at NBC, it's kind of what, where we are. Um, and so the reason that in our articles of faith, we call it the Lord's supper or, or the Lord's meal Lord's tables because it, it drops a pin on the map of the fact this is a historical event. It's not just in the now. We're looking back to an event. And even Jesus, when he celebrates with his disciples, he's not inventing a new ritual. He's, he's commandeering an old ritual. The old ritual was what? Passover, right. And so Jesus steps into the, a Passover meal and, and he actually brings new meaning to it. Take a look at um, Mark chapter 14. And in Mark chapter 14, verses 12 and following says this. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples telling him, go into the city and a man's going to be carrying a jar of water. He's going to meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. So Jesus is about to celebrate the Passover. This amazing Jewish ritual, this event for them to remember something that took place. We were in bondage. We were slaves. And God liberated us. He brought complete justice and wrath but, but anyone who, who had the blood of a lamb put over the, go, over, over the doorpost were preserved. He passed over that house. And so we, every year, we celebrate the Passover to remember that this God is a liberating God. This God is a protecting God. This God has, even though we were a minority, even though we were kicked to the curb by every civilization, this God loves us. And there's something special that he has for us. And that, that, that was something that they would celebrate every year. And so Jesus steps into that. And all of a sudden you start seeing some symbols emerge that all these disciples growing up as good Jewish boys knew and participated in, but now it has deeper meaning. The first is the Passover bread. The Passover bread is something that um, is a part of the celebration. And in Passover, there's a certain kind of bread that's used. And what is this? 
Matzah. Has anyone eaten matzah before? Okay, yeah, it's awful, right? It's like a diet saltine. There's nothing really flavorable about this at all. But the thing that, that's the notable that's always been with, with these matzah bread is that they um, have all, in order for them to bake and not crack, because they don't have any, any leaven, they have uh, all these pierces, all these little like tiny holes all along do, down it. And they also have this really cool texture pattern on it from, from the baking process. Um, it's really interesting because um, this represents the sacrifice. After, after the, there was no longer temple sacrifice because the temple was destroyed, the rabbis took this piece that they would already use and said, you know what, this is kind of like, this is in place of our sacrifice, the lamb that we would bring to the temple to be sacrificed. So what they, what they do in the Passover is they would take a, um, a special thing called the matzah tosh, which is kind of like, like a hot pocket. It's like three compartments uh, that you would put these in. And it's, it's made out of uh, fabric. And you take the first one and you would put it in the bottom. You take the second one and you put it in the middle pouch. And then the third one would be on the, the, the final top pouch. And then during the ceremony, you would take out the middle. And by the way, if you, when, when asked, where, where did that practice come from? Like, where does that connect with, with the Exodus or the Passover? How God passed over, and, and Jewish historians are like, I, we don't really know where this started, but we just have been doing it, and I don't, we don't even really know what it represents. Maybe it's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but we're not totally sure. Once Jews started to realize that Jesus was the Messiah, and they're participating in the same ritual at Passover, they're still celebrating Passover, they realized something very significant that took place inside of this custom of, of putting things in the, the matzotosh. There's a part, a time where you take out the middle one. So you have the top, there's the second one, and then the third one. And they would say, this is kind of like the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And it's so cool because already, all the way from ancient times on, they would take out the middle piece and it would be broken, representing the sacrifice. And then that piece was then put into a cloth and wrapped and hidden away in the house somewhere. And so like, it's, it'd be like, uh, like Easter egg hunts for the kids. Because after the Passover, the kids would go try to find this. And if they found it, they, they brought it back to the parents and they received a gift. Take a look at when Jesus is celebrating the Passover. And we don't have the full account of every detail of what took place in their Passover in the Gospels. But, but listen to this part. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. This is verse 22. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, take this, this is my body. He takes the matzah, the, 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 the second part, and he, and he says, this, this is my body. One of the things that, that um, Jewish people within Passover look forward to is the fact that the Messiah is supposed to do something special at Passover. He's supposed to come one day and come and, and be, be their redemption and one of the things they realize about this coming Messiah is found in Isaiah 53, which describes that very kind of bread that Jesus was using. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. For he, very much like this piece of bread, was pierced for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And like Jesus... Not only was he absolutely tortured and striped for our, for our sin, for our wrong, he was beaten and tortured and then put to death on, a, on an execution cross for our, 
for our benefit. But he was also wrapped in cloth and hidden away. And three days later, he was found. And that was the gift that was brought to the entire civilization. This is the Messiah. He did not stay dead. The resurrection is the reality we continue to affirm and realize the importance of. Amen? That's the Passover bread. Another thing that's a part of the custom is the Passover wine. And, the, and we have to know that the Passover wine has a lot to... It, there's four glasses of wine throughout the ceremony of Passover. We don't have the first two recorded in the Gospels, but they would have taken place because this is what everyone who did Passover took place in or, or partake, took in. The first cup is the cup of sanctification. Within the, the Passover celebration, even to this day, the first cup is, is a cup of blessing or sanctification. And it's reflecting, each of the four cups of wine reflect a promise in the book of Exodus. Go ahead and put that up there, Benj. The, the first one comes from the beginning there. Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. If you guys were here when we studied what sanctification means, it means to set apart And so this first cup is saying, God set us apart from our captors. He set us aside from the people who are oppressing us. But he also sets us apart from our sin. He alone can do that. That is what he does. So the first cup is the cup of sanctification. And then there's a bunch of other stuff that takes place in the Passover. And then it leads to the second cup. And the second cup is the cup of praise. And the reason it's a cup of praise is because of the second promise. I will free you from being slaves to them. And see, the second cup is, we praise you, God, because again, you are the only one, you're the only one who who could actually set us free. So we give you praise. And then they move to the third cup. And this is the cup that you know most well. This is the cup that, that, that you have most imprinted on the memory of church life for you. The third cup is the cup of redemption. This is the cup that we see Jesus using in the gospel account. Take a look at verse 23. Then he took the cup. He gave thanks and offered it to them, and they all drank from it. This, this is my blood, the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. This right here, this third cup, the cup of redemption, this is my blood. I'm going to redeem you. And look at the promise that it reflects. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, with many acts of judgment. Jesus took upon himself all the judgment of the entire world when he stretched out his arms and died on the cross for each of us. And he's, this is the cup that he celebrates with his disciples. And then he stops. He never gets to the final cup. He never finishes off. In fact, what, what's recorded is that after the third cup, they sing a, a, a hymn and then they book it. They get out of there. They're out of, they're out of the room. Why did Jesus abstain from the final cup? In fact, he said in Matthew, I think it's Matthew 26, he says, I'm, after, after, actually, no, he says it in this passage right here. He says, I tell you the truth, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. There's two reasons why he, he stopped with this cup and didn't finish the Passover meal. First off, this cup is not only the cup of redemption, but it's also called the cup of betrothal. It's kind of a picture of betrothal between us and God. It's also the custom that was given whenever someone was um, going to be uh, proposing to a girl in, in the early, back, back in the day, back in, in the ancient, ancient Israel. Let's just, um, there's my wife back there, and so I'm just going to totally embarrass her, and I didn't tell her about this in advance. But Julie, just for, to be fair, so far I've embarrassed Nick Dertinger in the same way, and this is going to be far less awkward. 
If you wanted to propose to a girl in the first century, you would have the cup of betrothal. It'd be a glass of wine. So you're like 14, 15, 16 years old, and you're planning in your head, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to say this to her. I'm going to, I'm going to say this, and she's going, to, she's going to say yes. No, she's not going to say yes. Maybe I should, I'm going to sing it. I'm going to sing it. And then she's going to, no, no, I can't sing. She's going to totally say no. I'm just going to go over. I'm just going to be honest. We're going to tell her the honest truth, and then, and then I'm going to offer the, her the cup, the cup of betrothal. And she'll have an opportunity to respond. And so that boy, that, that little boy, would walk nervously all the way to her, this girl's house, this young Jewish maiden's house. And he's, and he's walking, you can imagine, he's so nervous that he's shaking that glass of wine so much that it's all over his arms now. But eventually he gets there. He gets there with maybe like, you know, an ounce of wine left. And he gets there to her house. And, and all of a sudden, he, he, he knocks on the door. He says, hello. And then he says, okay, don't forget, don't forget, don't forget. And he remembers the customary speech that was given in proposing to a girl. A girl that would be betrothed to you for life. And he'd say, I just came from my dad's house. And it's big. It's a big house. It's a, it's, and I'm, I'm working on a room, a place for you and for me. And I'm going to go and prepare a place for us. And then he would give her the cup. And if she took it, well, if she said no, she's like, no, thanks. It's not you, it's me. (laughs) I just don't see you that way. I think we should just be friends. It'll make it awkward at work, whatever. If she says that, if she refuses to drink the cup, he just walks back home crying. And his mom says, I didn't like her anyway. Don't worry about it. You got better (laughs) prospects. But if she drinks it, if she, drink, if she takes the cup and she drinks it, they're betrothed. And he's excited now. He's so stoked. He like sprints back to the house and he starts to build the house. And he starts building this house because again, back in that time, it wasn't like, hey, we, you know what? We should really leave and cleave. Let's go ahead and like, we'll build in Morris. It wasn't like that. It was like you built onto the de- your dad's house. And, and when you, you continued to build and build and build until the room was done. And you, as the kid, as, as the young man, did not have the opportunity to say, okay, it's finished. The only person who had the opportunity to say, this is finished, was your dad. He would look at it, inspect it, and say, no, it's not ready, man. Not yet. Okay, I'll keep working. But the day that he said that it's finished, the day that he says, this is finished, all of a sudden, you're not going to drink the cup of betrothal. You would walk down or you would run back to that girl's house and you would say, it's done, it's finished. And she would walk with you back and all of your friends would come with you and you'd be walking back to the father's house. You'd have a huge wedding celebration and on that day you would drink the final cup, the cup of consummation. In the Passover festivities, that's what we see happening. And here's the interesting thing, is that Jesus has his disciples end on the cup of betrothal. And says, I'm not going to drink again of this wine until the kingdom is finished. Until all the building is done. All the work is done. And when it's done, I'm going to come back to you. And the way to assure them of this, he recites to them the very Jewish proposal that they had all heard and understood. And we see that in John chapter 14. When he says to them, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I, have, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and I will take you to be with me that you also may be, may be where I am. Amen? 
Jesus is saying, whenever you come to the table, whenever you come and celebrate the Lord's Supper, you are drinking the cup of betrothal, renewing the vows that you have between you and Jesus. The church is called the bride of Christ for a reason. The proposal's been made, the work's been done, and now he's working on finishing a place. And he promises us that he's coming back. He says, I will come back. I will return. This is why I love communion, because it's not just recognizing what's going on right now. It's not just looking back to the past. It's actually a hopeful view into the future. Because we, whenever we take communion, we realize his work in this world is not yet done. But we, we're, we're betrothed to him, and so we're going to continue participating in the work he's doing. You know, whenever we, we finish up with, a lot of times when we do communion, we have communion right up at the front so we can sing afterwards. And that's so appropriate. So we can respond in praise to the one we're betrothed to, the one, the one who, who's, who's made the sacrifice for us. And, and on communion Sundays, we always have, and this is just our tradition, we just have um, a way for you to give to the people who are, the, are having the most difficult time financially. Because we're saying, look, you're building a kingdom. And we want to be a part of it. We want our whole lives to be about that. We want to, give, we want to lean into that. Whenever we take the Lord's Supper, we're reminded of that reality. The reality that this amazing Savior is here. He's for us individually. He's for us as a group. And he's not done yet. Today as we take communion, I want to encourage you to do something. It's very easy to come up and take these elements and walk back to your seats and that's kind of it. But some of you are in here with some pretty heavy hearts. Disappointments in the past or the recent past have weighed you down to the point where you feel like you are just going through the motions. Or something just has, has occurred in your own life or maybe your own failure that you're just like, it's weighing, weighing you down. What we want to give you an opportunity to do is, we're, we're, like normal, we're going to give everyone a chance to exit the rows on the left, come and take the elements of the table closest to them and return to their, their rows on the right. We're going to give people a chance to do that but while you're waiting, or before, if, you, if you're seeing that there is a huge line, and maybe you just, you just need some prayer, there's going to be people standing around the room, and you could just, they'll be just standing there waiting, that are willing to pray with you. And you could tell them what's going on, and, they, and they'll just pray for you right there. You might be, have been going through some serious illnesses and sickness, and you're just like, I just need God's help with this. Or your marriage, or the stuff with kids, or, or whatever it is. Again, the Lord's Supper is an opportunity for us truly to be real with God, real with each other, and let that project us to be real in the world. Take time during communion, during the Lord's Supper, even in the music afterwards, to take advantage of going up. And even if you don't want to say a word, just saying, I just need prayer, they'll pray for you right there. Let's pray. And then after that, let's go ahead and exit our rows on the left, take the elements, bring them back to the seat, and then we'll take them together in just a few moments. Lord Jesus, we turn to you. We thank you for bringing us to a point of understanding the importance and necessity of, of the Lord's Supper, of communion, of reaffirming our dedication to you, the story that had been told all throughout history of your people, of you setting your people aside, and you, and you brought us into that. 
We could celebrate that, the sanctification. We could celebrate that in praise that you freed us. We could celebrate the fact that you've redeemed us. We could celebrate the fact that you're not done yet. Lord, I pray that you allow that to be the transforming work in our hearts today. And let this not be something that just shakes free as soon as we're done here, but sticks with us as we leave. We'll give you thanks for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and